Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Everybody comfortable, more or less. So what I'd like to do is to speak for a little bit, then we can have a break, some discussion, and some more practices together. It seemed like an okay schedule. Um, I hope that you can feel that when you're sitting, uh, it not only settles your mind, even if your technique is so-so, you'll feel that your mind and your body settle. Um, but you can also feel how uh, your whole life just becomes simpler. Can you feel that? Sometimes things seem so complicated and sometimes things are really complicated. And one of the things that happens when we sit is we begin to recognize that a lot of the complication, a lot of the complexity comes from us. There are things about the world that are very complicated and meditation doesn't give us any tools to understand the complexity from outside that are any better than you would get by studying ecology or biology. If you want to study complexity, that's where you should go. But if you want to work with decreasing complexity, especially perceived complexity, or especially the complexity that arises when we can't simplify our own lives, then we should start by just sitting down and finding our breath and sitting still. Because I don't think there's anyone in this room who doesn't feel that they want their life to be simpler. <coughs> How many times a week do you say, I just wish it was a little simpler. Mm -hmm. um, and in the space of simplicity, one of the things that you might start to see is how complicated we make things for ourselves and other people. And how meditation practice is a practice of rescuing ourselves and other people. How do you rescue someone? Sit still. Um, so, for those of you who have a meditation practice, you might also recognize that meditation practice matures, it deepens by letting the practice become more simple over time. Usually in the first five to ten years of practice, 
We always want to learn more techniques. It's like this with any craft. In the first decade, you just want as many techniques from as many schools as possible. And then over time, you start to sift through those techniques and you realize, you know, the beginning of the inhale is worth hanging out with for the next decade. Or maybe natural breathing is worth exploring for the next five years to just let the body breathe. Or maybe you might say that uh, I just need to feel how my presence can be more generous. So this is the art of sitting, is bringing a very generous presence to what's happening in our experience. And to step back from the details of what's going on to notice the subjective experience of paying attention. I'm going to say that again. Is to step back from the details of what's happening. The details, we're usually noticing all those little details. To take a step backwards and notice the subjective experience of paying attention. What's it like? What kind of attention are you using in the experience? Usually we're so glued to the details that we're not noticing the kind of attention we're bringing to the moment. And then when we experience pain, we just bring the attitude of, I don't want this and I want to get out of this. And you're going to experience pain. And then when we experience joy, we only have the attitude of, I have to have more of this. And then you think that whatever is happening in the moment is what's giving you the joy. And then you say to yourself, I just have to have more of him or her, or this piece of land, or whatever. And we confuse the object for the subjective experience. Our attitude is directly related to our mood. Our mood is very much related to our posture. Our posture is very much influenced by our attitude. Our attitude is then influenced by our mood. And then our mood is affected by our posture. And who knows what comes first? Maybe it doesn't matter. So that's why we start with this posture of sitting really still like a mountain like a fluid mountain. Feeling our breathing, just like we would feel a fluid river in a mountain. Feeling the triangle of the sitting bones rooting in the earth. The bridge of the nose lifting up out of the sitting bones. Feeling the mountain. And our golden ears. Is that what they're called? Yeah. I drove over a bridge this morning. Golden ears. <coughs> When we're frightened, things only get worse because when we're scared, uh, we resist. And when we're scared, we forget that it's possible to experiment and try different things. 
but when we have a lot of fear, the walls of the mind go up, the posture deteriorates, our mood deteriorates, our attitude deteriorates. And then it becomes hard to make a move. So that's why we need to have a posture that's right here all the time, that's both stable, really stable, but also responsive. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Like, sometimes you can make a posture that seems really stable, and you say, oh, this is a very stable pose, but you're a little bit uptight. You know? So how do you sit and just be yourself at the same time? So uh, the key is um, being generous with yourself. So with whatever's happening, you have a generous attitude with your experience. It's okay. It's like uh, permissive. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to permit these feelings right now. I'm going to permit this discomfort right now. Or I'm going to permit the fact that I don't understand the situation that I've been in this week. And all week, every night I come home from work and I spin the car tires in the snow. And I'm going to figure this out so that I can go to work next week and be really clear and be a good leader. You tried this? So you might get into the meditation space and say, you know what? I'm not going to use this space to figure this out. Because I'm not going to figure it out. And you know, most things we don't figure out by ourselves anyways. So I'm just going to rescue myself. And I'm going to find my posture again and find my breathing because I've actually lost track of any way forward. And now mostly I'm just scared or paranoid because I'm not in control. So the first thing you do is you feel that your body is breathing. You check the fingertips. You release your tongue and soften the gums around your teeth so that you're alert and responsive and not uptight. And then you can let go. And as I said last night about letting go, is every time you come back to the breath, it's letting go. And not only that, this is the punchline. Don't tell anybody this, but this is, this is really the best part. You could just start over. So you, you've made a mess, but it's not your destiny. You've made a mess, you've made things so complicated, now you get to take a deep breath and you just get to start over again. Every moment you get to start over again. Even though you still might have to work with stupid decisions you made and you still might have to pick up the pieces and you still might feel grief and you still might feel confusion. You, you get to start over in how you then meet what's happening. So it's not all a catastrophe or it's not all bad especially if you're a critical person, critical of others or critical of yourself. There's a great New York joke where uh, uh, two couples are at a really good restaurant and the waitress comes over and says, um, is anything okay?
I think that most of us, including myself, uh, we don't understand how our deepest uh, sorrows uh, turn into unskillful actions. There are layers of uh, discomfort or sadness or grief that we feel that we don't want to feel. And I think we're blind often to how not feeling what's really going on in our experience turns into both unskillful actions and unskillful intentions. Because one of the things that meditation really clears up is our intentions and our actions. We often say, oh, meditation is about noticing your actions, but it's actually a little more than that. It's starting to notice your intentions, the intention behind what you say and what you do and what you eat and how you move and so on. And when our sorrow is unbearable, we try and destroy it. And if we can't destroy it in ourselves, uh, we ask others to hold it for us. Usually this is unconscious and happens as projection or expectations of other people. So every time we hurt somebody, what we're really doing deep down is we're giving our sorrow to somebody else to hold. Logically, that means that every time we can't hold our sorrow, we hurt other people. One of my favorite uh, philosophers, Judith Butler, writes, but has anyone ever stopped grieving by destroying another's life? Let me read that again. But has anyone ever stopped grieving by destroying another's life. When we are hurt, we insist that other people are also hurt. As if everybody should suffer along with me. Sometimes, the more we can't process our sorrow, the more we'll create communities around us of others who are suffering just like us. Have you ever seen this before? It's very popular after breakups. After breakups, we tend to love hanging out with other people who are also uh, jaded about uh, relationships in general. But there's no deep satisfaction that ever comes from commiserating. There's no deep satisfaction that ever comes from giving our people, other people our sorrow. And there's no deep satisfaction that ever comes from war. Everyone loses. We make war on ourselves, and we go to war against other people. So what's behind going to war? Blame? Of course. Well, I think that if we go further, behind rage, is the inability uh, to feel sorrow. So that's why meditation practice is a practice of peace and nonviolence. 
because we're allowing ourselves to take back the rage that we really believe when we have when we're in rage we really believe that it's about other people we really believe that it's like the greatest delusion ever and my understanding of the path of being a yogi is to take back resentment and rage and bring it inward again so that we can really feel the simple feelings that are inside of those more extroverted intentions. So if I try and resist anything in my life, this is what I try and resist, is giving everybody else my sorrow or my unprocessed reactivity. So when you sit, it seems like you're doing this for yourself, doesn't it? Like, oh, I'm just trying to find some peace. But then over time, you start to realize that your sitting practice benefits everybody that you encounter. Because it's so easy to blame. And you might think as I'm speaking, oh, well, should I just stay in bed then and just feel my feelings all day? Maybe I should just get under the covers for a year and just get really sad. Um, Or maybe I should lie in corpse pose for hours until I really feel like I've died and let go. Of course not. Grief and sorrow are not things. They're fluid, just like mountains. And that means that uh, for a while we might feel the experience of grief or disappointed or angry, but we keep on doing what we're doing. We keep on doing. Maybe we take some time where we're quiet, but then we get up and we keep doing our day, but we can manage these feelings more. And they're impermanent. So if you feel grief, maybe you feel grief for 30 minutes. And then it passes, and then you just feel pissed off about something. And in this way, uh, by having this combination of stillness and movement, keeping up with our experience, we learn how to take care of what we're feeling. And this is what I want the takeaway from our day-long workshop here to be, which is that it's possible to take care of yourself by taking care of what you feel. And the flip side of that is when you do that, you rescue other people. This is called the Bodhisattva vow, which is I'm going to do this inner work because by doing so, I'm going to rescue other people. So I take care of you by knowing what's happening for me. And if I know what's happening for me, I'm protecting you. Your presence helps me. My presence helps you. And I think we all know by now, because most of us are adults, I think, and we know by now what it feels like when we're in the company of people who can't really be present. And there's a sadness, I think, that you can feel for other people's lives. Partly because you recognize when you were like this also. So our relationships, that's the present moment alarm. So that means someone here is not present. The alarm goes off. And as soon as you come back again, it'll shut off. It's really cool. 
So come back, wherever you've gone. <coughs> Great, okay. <laughs> so our relationships are doors, or gates. And we can step through the gate, or we can be scared, and not let others come through the gate. It's said that there are 84,000 Dharma gates. And all you need is to step through one. And the one gate is the gate that's happening in this moment. And you can step through it. Or you can do something else, which is let other people come through also. Sometimes you don't have to do so much. You just have to make some space so other people uh, can come into your life. You're at a farmer's market, you're buying apples, and then when the apples are filled in your bag, you stop, and you remember when you were married, and you used to go to the farmer's market together and buy apples, and then you feel some sorrow. Or you're at a hospital visiting somebody who's very ill, and then you walk out of the hospital onto a busy street and the world is just going on and whatever happened in the hospital nobody cares cars are going by people are going to work or you're at a grocery store you buy your groceries you walk out into the parking lot and you look at the sky and it's so beautiful this happens all day long we have these moments where there's like two worlds at the same time. There's this everyday mundane world that we're lost in most of the time. And then behind it is the profundity of the fact that our life is so fragile and precious and interconnected. And I would add, beautiful. So beautiful. So the Buddha called this the first noble truth my translation of the first noble truth is, this is how it is. That's what you say to yourself. This is how it is. So you're sitting, and a lot of people, when they start meditation practice, the first thing you say is, it's so uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable. And I used to have all kinds of nice things I would say, and now I just say, it's just like your life. <laughs> sometimes it's comfortable, and sometimes it's really uncomfortable. So what? So don't meditate? Fine. I'm not going to convince you. But you might one day realize that all the same shit that happens when you're driving or walking or whatever is exactly the same thing that happens when you're sitting. It's just that when you're sitting, now you have the space to actually start to work with it without running away. So we're all tangled up. And us all being tangled means that if I rescue myself, then I rescue you. And that's the beginning of nonviolence. If I can take care of my experience, then in doing so, I'm taking care of you. Does everybody hear this? If you can take care of what's happening in your experience, 
all the conditioning of your heart, then you help other people. And who you are is all tangled up with the people that you love and the people that you hate and the people that you envy and the people that you blame. Whoever you love, you also hate. And wherever you hate, you also love. The people who can satisfy you are the same people who create the deepest frustration for you. And the people who frustrate you are also the people who can provide you great satisfaction. Because uh, we're human and we're very ambivalent. And so we need to be able to take care of our reactivity so that when the love is there, we can feel the love. When the hate is there, we can feel the hate. And anyways, those are just impermanent mental states. And over time, we keep uh, simplifying so that we can see these layers of our heart melt away. So that we can be tangled up, all of us together, without so much drama. <laughs> um, last night, I read a poem by Philip Whalen. Do you remember that? Can I read another one? Uh, uh, he wrote this uh, in 1966 in Kyoto. I went to visit several thousand gold Buddhas. Has anyone here spent time in Kyoto? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we talked about this. Do you know the... I forgot the name of the temple that has the thousands of... Yeah, yeah, and it's really long and wooden and it's so beautiful. Yeah. So this is at that same, same temple. Uh, everybody should go there. It's like, it seems at first like a kind of touristy kind of place, but it's just mind-blowing. Thousands of wooden... <coughs> Buddhas with many arms. So, anyways. I went to visit several thousand gold Buddhas. They sat there all through the war. They didn't appear just now because I happened to be in town. They sat there 600 years. Failures. Does Buddha fail? Do I? Someday I guess I'll never learn. You want to hear it again? I went to visit several thousand gold Buddhas. They sat there all through the war. They didn't appear just now because I happened to be in town. They sat there 600 years. Failures. Does Buddha fail? Do I? Someday, I guess, I'll never learn. <laughs> that last line is amazing. <laughs> So, um, there's a strange tone in this poem of disappointment. Yeah? Can you hear that? Does it remind you of the poem last night? An embarrassment? A genius? So, all these Buddhas are sitting there. They're sitting there, all these Buddhas, taking care of their minds. Meanwhile, there's been war. So they failed. But then again, we fail also. 
And even though we have ideals like, oh, I'm not going to fail. I'm going to be a Buddha. Well, guess what? Maybe that's what being a Buddha is. Is that when you fail, you can recover quickly. I say this to parents a lot because there's this new oppressive regime called mindful parenting. You heard about this? It drives me crazy. So not only do you have to be a really good partner, good lover, have a good job, be a great parent, have a hobby, yeah. sit meditation every day, provide for your family, keep the house clean, see your in-laws, return your emails. Like not only have to, now you also have to be a mindful parent. And I say to people like, don't be a mindful parent. Just be yourself. Just be yourself. But what meditation will teach you is that you don't have to be meditative with your kids, which is probably very annoying. <laughs> um, but when you screw up, you can recover more quickly. So your kid does something stupid, you say something stupid, and then right away you notice that and you recover quickly. And then your kids see how you can recover quickly. You don't beat yourself up. You don't beat them up, I hope. And you recover very quickly. More resilience, I guess, is the cool term. So let me sum up. When you lose uh, people, when you lose what you love, uh, something in us gets torn apart. I think I mentioned this last night. Uh, there's no way out of that. That's the first noble truth. This is how it is. If we're all tangled up with each other, when you lose what you love, it's going to be terrible because you lose a piece of you. There's no solution to that. Does everybody hear this? I keep wanting to make sure that you're getting the punchline. Then we say to ourselves, I cannot live without you. You ever said this? I can't live without you. And then you lose the person who you love, but then you go on living, and actually you can live without them. But you're not the same, because uh, a piece of you is gone, which is them inside you. And you can't ever retrieve that again. But if the loss that I feel when I lose somebody is the same as the loss that you feel when you lose somebody, then maybe the loss we feel when we lose somebody is actually just capital T, the, capital L, loss. It's human loss. It's the loss that we're destined to feel because we're all made up of each other. So then maybe we can use our experience of grief to see that we're not so separate after all. Are we? Not so separate. Now, there can be no me without loss. So, may I read you something? There's a new term. It's actually, I learned on Wikipedia, coined in 2003, so I'm a little late to the game. It's called solastalgia. Let me read the definition of this. 
Uh, it, well, first of all, it was coined by an Australian philosopher uh, in 2003, and um, it's described as a form of psychological or existential distress caused by environmental change, such as mining or climate change. As opposed to nostalgia, the melancholy of distress experienced by people when separated from a loved person, solastalgia is the distress produced by environmental change impacting people while they're directly connected to their home environment. It has its origins in the concept of solace and desolation. Solace means connected to the alleviation of distress and finding comfort in distressing times. And desolation means abandonment and loneliness. And alja, the, the suffix alja, means um, pain or suffering. So solastalgia, this is the, what Wikipedia says, solastalgia is a form of homesickness like that defined by the old term nostalgia, except that the victim has not left their home or their home environment. Okay, so it's the homesickness that you feel because your home is disappearing and you can't get back to your home landscape or ecology because it's disappearing, but you haven't left. Does this make sense a little bit? So I think this should be included in how we understand grief because our understanding of grief is all about humans. But maybe there's another kind of grief that we're all starting to feel. Where you look around, and there's no doubt that you can always see beauty. But actually, and I don't know if this is maybe especially true for my generation. I don't know. Maybe. This might be more of a Generation X thing. But as a kid, you probably have some memories of a time where you could connect with a nature that's not very far away from uh, density. That there's density, but there's also some pure space that you can find very easy, that maybe you found when you were a kid. You could be uh, maybe at the store buying candy, and then you could get on your bike and eat the candy by a river where you can't hear any cars. So, solastalgia is that there's something weighing on our hearts also. Where whatever your politics are about pipelines and climate change and so on, there is a homesickness we feel because our home is disappearing right in front of our eyes. So, I hope that meditative practice will guard the natural world from this kind of destructive, extractive mindset. Because what happens when you sit still is your values change and you stop needing so much. You don't need so much. I gave you the example of my teacher who orders off the menu in terms of the alphabet. <coughs> so her preferences have decreased. I asked her about it once. I said, uh, 
when I first met you, you were like vegetarian, blah, 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 blah. And uh, she told me that when, you know, she, she's done lots of street retreats, which are these retreats with uh, her close friend, Bernie Glassman, where they go out into the street and they live there and they do silent retreats out in the streets of Manhattan. I don't know if they do them in Vancouver. I'm sure somebody does them in Vancouver. Yeah. yeah. And after that, she's so appreciative that she can eat. But this is her new dietary practice. Is whenever she eats, she just has tremendous gratitude that she's eating. So, maybe when you're done with your current diet. So you were vegan, then you were uh, paleo. If you're a true paleo, you have to like hunt. <laughs> and then, um, Maybe your next dietary phase can be gratefulness, gratitude. But I think actually if you go deeper than that and you start to explore gratitude in your eating, in your transportation, in everything that you do, then uh, you'll start to have solastalgia. You'll start to miss your home. And this will motivate you, I think to protect what you've got left. So, if you try and refuse this deep interdependence that we are, which is, uh, occurs in grief and solastalgia, uh, then you refuse love. If you defend yourself against how deeply enmeshed we all are in each other, then you refuse, you defend against the possibility of loving, which is not something that happens with one person. It's something that happens all the time in our interactions. So, let me finish by saying, I hope everybody, after today, sits still for a certain period of time every day. Last night it was a big, you know, talk, and so I just tell everybody, do walking meditation and wash dishes and blah, blah, blah. And I tell you good stories like, you know, wash your dishes carefully. But actually, everybody here, you should sit every day. <laughs> and when you sit, you just set up your posture, you feel your breathing, and you notice all your reactivity that comes up. And then every time you come back to your breath, you remember, oh, I can start again. I had a little dream, and I wake up. Oh, and then I was in another little dream, and then you wake up. And then you're in another dream, and you wake up. And you wake up, and you wake up, and you wake up. And if you're a very spiritual person, and you're wedded to very specific ideas of enlightenment, you wake up from that also. You notice that that's also a little dream. You want your esoteric experience so that you can be more like Eckhart Tolle. But actually, you wake up from that too because Eckhart Tolle's experience is Eckhart Tolle's experience. It's his life. That's not your life. And your awakening can only happen in your life and it's not going to look like anybody else's awakening. So don't read about other people's awakening. 
be in your life because it can't look like somebody else's life. And then you have a timer behind you, timing the time. Or if you buy good quality incense, usually all the incense is uh, created in lengths that are measured in time before they put clocks in temples. How much time it's taken? Well, a lot of them are 30 minutes. So anyways, you can watch the stick. And when it goes out, then you can bow. Then you can get up. And uh, you can experience how, if you do this every day, and you actually stick to the time, <coughs> then uh, you'll see that time really purifies your heart. You just put in the time, and it's something about the time and the breathing just purifies the plaque, heart plaque. Is there such a thing as heart plaque? Yeah. I'm not talking about, like, bacon. <laughs> I'm talking about uh, resentment and the inability to grieve and projecting your grief into other people's lives which is a practice of killing, actually. So, um, thank you for listening. So what I'd like to do is uh, take a break for 10 minutes, and then we'll come back and have a discussion and do some more practice. However, I think just because we only have one day together, and everything we're saying is a matter of life and death, then let's have our break in silence. And let's really keep to it. And uh, just to be in your experience, feel what it's like to be in silence with other people. And then in 10 minutes, we'll talk again. So thank you.